You are listening to the Nassau Bay Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that seeks to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus in order to make disciples who serve their community and spread the gospel to the nations. Thank you, Beth and Hope, for sharing that with us this morning. Uh, one other thing I want to remind you, some of you that were here a few weeks ago when we were talking about prayer, there are some prayer guides out in the back to help you if you struggle with disciplining yourself every day to pray and how to pray, what to pray for. This is a little helpful tool, and I would encourage you to pick one up. They were in the bulletin, and if you were here, you, you got one, uh, and hopefully you're using it. Several people have said how helpful it's been to give them a guide throughout the week to pray. And so I hope that uh, you've taken advantage of that. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 13. And we're going to do a little bit like we did last week. I'm going to lay out a couple of principles for you before we move into the subject of what the sermon is about. Now, as you're turning there, as we began uh, the last Sunday in December, talking about a fresh start. And we talked about, first of all, about abiding, about spending time with the Lord daily, about uh, being fruitful, what that looks like. We talked about prayer the next week. The week after that, we talked about giving and then going, and then last week serving. And today we look to our final word, our final verb, and that is love. And so I'm going to encourage you just to take just a moment and look in your bulletin. And on that little sheet is a question, a review about how you would rate yourself on a scale, I made it easy, zero to five. Not zero to ten, zero to five. And so it should be pretty easy for you to look at that and say, where am I? Now, zero, hope you can figure that out. Zero means I ain't doing it, okay? Five means I'm doing pretty good and I'm moving on. I'm growing in my faith. I'm growing in these areas of my life. And so I want you to take a moment, and as I go through, I'm going to name, maybe you need to take it home and think about it, or men, maybe you need to ask your wife how you're doing on these. The first one is abiding. Are you spending time daily with Christ, and is your life what the Bible would call fruitful? How do you rate on the zero to five scale? Secondly, when it comes to prayer, are you spending time in prayer? Are you interceding for others, your church, the lost, and finally, lastly, yourself? What about your giving? Are you supporting kingdom work through your local church, both financially and through, through service and through time? And then going. Are you actively looking for opportunities to share the gospel? And are you taking advantage of those opportunities by sharing the gospel? And then last week we talked about serving. Are you currently using your gifts that God has given you to serve the Lord? And the key here is through the church. Because when we see and learn about spiritual gifts, they were given for the growth and the expansion of the church. And so that is primarily where we should be using our gifts and our service is through the local church. And then this morning, you'll be able to answer this one later, or maybe you already know. Does your love for others in the family of God look like 1 Corinthians 13? And so if you've never read 1 Corinthians 13, you can't answer that question. But hopefully you know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. Much of what is called love in our society is not what true biblical love looks like. We see banners, we see slogans, we see coffee mugs, license plates that say God is love. But do we really understand what that means? Does a lost world really understand what it means when we say God is love? Because the God we say is love is also holy and just. 
And so we need to have balance there. We need to understand that God is love, but he's like a loving father too. That sometimes he disciplines us out of that love. And God loves us. Yes, that is true. And Christian love, though, we find out is a lot different than what the world describes as love. And I I have a feeling that in, in church today, we actually have believers, we have people that sit on the pew that call themselves Christians that have no clue what kind of love we're talking about, what kind of love the Bible is talking about. And so last week we looked in John 13 as Jesus talked about serving and he washed the disciples' feet. Remember that began the the week, that Passion Week, and as Jesus moves towards the cross, last week he washed their feet, and then following that was the, the Lord's Supper. And then we come to the end of chapter 13, and Jesus makes an astonishing statement that to his disciples and his followers regarding this matter of love. Now keep in mind they've already had the Lord's Supper, that final meal, and then Judas has already left. He's gone out. And there in verse 34, speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now here we see, first of all, the command to love. This is not an option. It's not up for debate. Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another. Now remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to his disciples. He's writing to believers. So this command specifically is for those of us who call ourselves born again, call ourselves Christians, we are to love one another. And some people say, well, why is this a new commandment? Well, keep in mind that the idea of loving one another and loving God is not new because we find it throughout the Old Testament. In the Shema, though that, that phrase and that passage that the Jewish, all Jews would, would know and, and remember and memorize and state was we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to go about and we're to teach these things to our children. We're to put them on our doorpost. All of those things were found in the Old Testament. And even loving your neighbor is found in the Old Testament. But here, Jesus is about to take it to another level as he talks about a love that they have never seen before, a love that they do not understand, as Jesus, and Kim quoted this passage earlier, laid down his life for them. They would see what sacrificial love, giving one's life for another without expecting anything in return, looks like. And so this is not new in the sense of a new idea. It's just Jesus taking it to another level. Someone has said that this is new because it was to be more honored, to occupy a higher position, to be backed up by a higher example than had ever been seen before. In just a few days, his disciples would see that. They would recognize what Jesus did in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So this command to love one another tells us that we are to love one another. Why? Because Christ loves us. This is the standard of love the disciples have for one another is the same standard of love that Jesus had for them. They were to model the love that Jesus showed them. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus, that someone who would lay down his life for his friends. 
When a sinner is born again and believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives birth and gives life to that person. That love of Christ is shed abroad in their hearts. So now they have the capacity to love as Jesus loved. Isn't that amazing? That that which we did not know, we do not know about, the love, the agape love of Jesus Christ is shed abroad in our hearts and now we have the capacity to love one another this way. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is giving instruction to, to husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's the same word there. It's not phileo. It's not eros. It's the word agape. It's the God kind of love that Jesus or Paul said, husbands, you're to have that kind of love for your wife. But apart from Christ, you can't show that love. And I would say apart from Christ, a relationship with Christ, no one can understand what real love is about until you've encountered and experienced the love of Christ in your life. Key word that we see here in chapter 13 and verse 34, he says, you love one another, don't miss this, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Now, Jesus would not give that command if it were not possible. But only through a relationship with him do we have even the capacity to love one another in that extreme. We have to be in a relationship with Christ. Husbands have to be in a relationship with Christ to be able to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. The second thing we notice, not only are we to love because Christ first loved us, but also we are to love when we find our understanding of love by observing God's character. Now we understand that the character of God, that God is, is love. That's true. But some people have this, this false idea that, oh, God loves. Or God, that's one characteristic of God. And he's got a characteristic over here. He's got a characteristic over here. No. You need to understand that God is love. God is holy to its fullest extent. That's not just a part of God, that is who God is. That is his character, that is his nature. Just as God's omniscience is part of his attribute and his character. Just as God being all powerful is part of his nature and his character. It's just not one little part of God, it's who God is. You say, pastor, I don't understand that. Join the club. <laughs> who can understand the things of God like that? That's the God that we serve. And he, he gives us, He sheds that love abroad in our hearts so that we can love that way. As we look at the character of God, there's, there's no greater place, I don't believe, than 1 John chapter 4. This seemed to be something that John the Apostle was moved about, was motivated by. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, many of you know this. Beloved, let us love one another. Sound familiar? Same apostle, same writer. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. That means you've been born again and knows God. The only way to know God is to be in a relationship with Him. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son, which we sang about earlier, into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that He has first loved us and has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. That is a wonderful description of love. John is just uh, uh, reiterating what he said in other places. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's what Paul said in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet, what, sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. That is the expression of God's love. And then we find in, in Ephesians chapter 2, that wonderful passage reminding us that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. It says that we were by, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together by grace. You have been saved and raised up with Him, seated with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, we, we are commanded to love, but also we love because we have an understanding that this is God's character. This is who God is. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love for one another. Did you catch that? What is the world going to see? What is the world going to say when they see us in the church, followers of Christ, Loving one another in a biblical way, what is the world going to say? They're followers. They're true disciples. They are imitating their master. And then our testimony is validated. Then our gospel message is validated with them. But when the world looks at the church and does not see us loving one another, the world says it's not real. Why would I want that? They say they're Christians, but look how they treat one another. Oh, friend, just look around us. We devour one another, don't we, in the church? We talk behind one another's back. We don't deal with sin the way we ought to. We, instead of confronting the person, talking to a person, we'd rather text message or we'd rather put it on Facebook instead of going and talking to the person. What a shame it is. And the world looks at that and laughs and scoffs. And the devil loves it. I've wondered sometimes maybe need to go back and we need to go back over our heart attitudes that we covered back in the fall. How soon we forget who we are. Not just, not just us, but I'm saying the church of Jesus Christ. All around. We bite, we devour one another. And the world looks at it and questions. They will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So, how are we to love? What does it look like? Does it look like the world's definition of love? No, that's, that's why our love is often selfish. That's why we say we love one another and we give lip service, but the church does not show love to one another. And so the question, to answer the question, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. So turn there, and we'll spend the rest of our time in this passage, which has been often misused, misapplied, misunderstood by so many people. 1 Corinthians 13, 
the entire chapter. And we're just going to run through this because these are pretty self-explanatory as we look at them. But as you're turning there, you need to know the context. For many people, this is a great chapter to read where? At weddings. This is not about a wedding. Okay? This is about a spanking. Because what you have within chapters 12 and chapter 14 is we see this passage about love because the Corinthian church was misusing and abusing spiritual gifts, especially certain spiritual gifts. Paul is writing this letter to correct their behavior. And so this is really, yes, it's about love, but in a disciplinary way to remind us and to remind the church at Corinth how they are to treat one another. You see, they were esteeming certain spiritual gifts as being greater than others. Oh, well, you have this gift. Well, that means I am better. You haven't arrived yet because you don't have this gift. And Paul deals with this through, and other issues throughout the, the church at Corinth. There was immorality running rampant. There are other things that were taking place in the church, and Paul uses this opportunity to remind them of what love is about. And with great understanding, we need to examine what true love is about. How you're to love the person sitting next to you. How do you love the person in front of you, the person behind you, the person you might disagree with? How you're to show love towards that person. And so as we look at this, the word that is used more than 10 times, and you know this word, we're not going to go through a definition. If you've been in church anytime, you know the different words for love in the New Testament and in the, in the Greek culture. And so the word that's used here is the word we're most familiar with, the word agape, which is describing a love that is unconditional, a love that is a love of volition, a love of choice. It's a love that serves out of humility, a love that is, that is intentional, it is a love that expects nothing in return. It's a love that is a choice. As we look at this type of love, we're reminded it's the same word that's used in John 13. It's the same word that's used in 1 John chapter 4. Now, other places in Scripture, other words for love is used. But here, the word agape is used. And we could just say this is a God-like love. This is the love that God shows towards people and towards us. It's interesting, the end of chapter 12, after talking to them about spiritual gifts, Paul says, I'm going to show you still a more excellent way. And here it is. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers... And understand all the mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give, remove mountains, then I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, if you look down at verse 13, he says, So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Greatest of these is love. So what we first see here is the supremacy of our love. As Paul, in these first three verses, first of all, he, he says that I can have eloquent speech. I can speak like the angels. I can be a great orator. 
and just have people listening on the edge of their seat. But if I don't have love, I'm full of hot air. I'm a noisy gong. Now, I, I've never, Brother Kim, I have never been to a concert where it was only gongs or cymbals. I can't imagine what that would be like. No offense if you play the gong or the cymbal. But I can't imagine what that would be like. But can you imagine, rather than have an eloquent voice, he says, if you can speak like the angels, but you have not love, you're just a bunch of hot air. You're a bunch of noise that makes no sense whatsoever. But when you take a, a cymbal or you take drums or you take something else, mixed in with other instruments, it creates a wonderful sound. I wonder how many people today on TV, I wonder how many pastors are filling pulpits, I wonder how many Sunday school teachers are noisy gongs because they have not love. The second thing he mentions here is knowledge. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if I am nothing. Paul says, I, I can have all of this knowledge. I can have a Ph.D. and perhaps more degrees than a thermometer. But if I have not love, I'm nothing. See, it's not about knowledge that puffs up. It's about loving one another. He says, I am nothing. The idea here is absolutely nothing. Not just nothing, but absolutely nothing. There's nothing good. Then he goes on, he says, talks about faith. If I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. He's not talking about saving faith here. But he's talking about someone who is maybe a visionary. Somebody who, who talks about their faith and their trust in God. But yet they can't love their neighbor. They can't love their brother. They can't get along with their spouse. They can't show agape love. They're nothing. And then the one that seems kind of striking is he says, if I give away all I have, I deliver up my body to be burned. That's a picture of sacrifice. A picture of even generosity. If I do all of that and yet do not have agape love, I'm what? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm just a noisy gong. I'm just puffed up. I'm just a big talker. I'm just one who likes to boast about what they've given up and sacrificed. So he moves from that to talking about the quality of our love. So we understand that we can have all those things and yet be nothing. But what does true love look like? This is what he describes beginning there in verse 4. As we see some characteristics of agape love. What's interesting is most of these characteristics are in the present tense. Which means they are continually being demonstrated. Not just one time. You can't just say, well, I remember that time in, in, in 2005 when I was patient. No, this is talking about a continual way of life. My life is characterized by, by these things. My love is characterized by these things. Verse 4, love is patient. How do we write there? Is your love patient? Who do we look at and see the greatest patience, the greatest example? It's God. 
God is long-suffering with us, is He not? He's patient with us. Our love should be as His love. Our love should be patient. It should have a long fuse. And what's the next thing He says? Love is patient and love is kind. The term kindness here appears many times in Paul's epistles and sometimes and many times connected with this subject of patience or love. But he says love is kind. Where have you seen patience and kind and love together before? For the Spirit, right? The fruit of who? The Spirit. Not something you manufacture, but something the Holy Spirit does in you. When you are surrendered to Him, when you are yielded to Him, He produces these things in you. Love is patient. Love is kind. You say, okay, I'm doing pretty good so far. Then He begins eight, listing eight negatives. Beginning there in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. In other words, love is not jealous. You see, if we love one another, we will not be jealous of another's success. We will not be jealous of what God may be doing in someone else's life. We won't be jealous of their spiritual gifts as some of the Corinthians were. We won't be jealous of one another. We won't be jealous of somebody's ministry. Then fourth, love not only does not envy or boast, Love does not boast or feel arrogant because it always deflects the praise to the glory of God. Love doesn't go around and say, well, let me tell you what I did. Let me tell you who I am. But instead, let me tell you what God has done. It deflects the glory from oneself to God himself, to his glory. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, does not boast, and it is not arrogant. My, how Baptists need to learn that one. Love is not prideful. Love is not arrogant. Love does not puff out its chest and say, look at me and look at us. Love is humble. When we begin our study of James, we will learn that God resists the proud or the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the kind of love we're to have for one another. Not proud, not boastful, not jealous, not arrogant. And then verse 5, love is not rude. It's not rude. Have you ever been around people that are just rude? One translation says they don't dishonor others. But love is not rude. Simply put, love is always, what's the opposite of rude? polite or courteous that's the kind of love we're to show to one another so when somebody's pulling out of the parking lot instead of rushing for the entrance what do you say no brother you go first no sister you go first and then you have a traffic jam because everybody's being so kind to one another (laughs) verse five nor is it rude it does not insist on its own way wow It doesn't insist on its own way. It's either my way or the highway. It's either my way or I'm going to leave. It's either my way or I can't be in your class or I can't be your friend. Love is not self-seeking. Instead, love asks, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? What can I do to, to help you with this? 
Love makes itself available. It's not seeking its own interest. We see that sometimes happen among Christians, among, among ministries, right? Well, my ministry needs this, or my ministry didn't get that, or my ministry needs more money. Is that the way we're to love one another? Verse 5, again, love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It's not easily provoked. You see, sometimes we, we in our flesh, when we're in our flesh, it doesn't take but a little thing to set us off, right? I know nobody in here has a problem with their temper. No one in here has a problem getting upset when something is said that they may not understand or they might comprehend or they don't agree with. And then verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. This idea of keeping a record of wrongs is a term from the accounting world or the business world. It's like love does not keep a spreadsheet on all the things that were done wrong to me. So at the proper time, I can pull out my spreadsheet and see, this is why I don't like that church. This is why I don't like that class. This is why I don't like these people. Look at all the things that are listed here. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Can you imagine if God kept a record of all the wrongs that we've done towards Him? Aren't you glad He doesn't do that? Love finds a way, or finds no joy in unrighteousness. Verse 6 is one that, that we see happen sometimes. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Have you ever been around people that when they see another brother fall, they sort of go, yeah. I was hoping that would happen. I just knew that was going to happen to that person. And they seem to get excited when righteousness, unrighteousness takes place. They see a leader fall, and they get sort of excited about that, and they like to talk about it. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Instead, love is broken over that. When a brother falls, when a sister falls or is in sin, uh, somebody who loves is broken, they're heartbroken. And they want to help, they want to reach out, they want to love. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, founds no joy in unrighteousness. Instead, verse 6 says, love rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. We love somebody, we're willing to share with them the truth, even if it's painful. Even if it's difficult. When we get to the end this morning, I'll share with you one statement related to loving one another that we need to remember as it relates to confronting a brother that's in sin or a sister that's in sin, how to do that in a loving way, in the way that Christ would do it. So we see these 11 characteristics, and now we look at the final four. And the final four are listed in an interesting way because the word all is used here. Beginning there we see in, in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word all is, comes from a word that, that means panta. It's where we get the idea of pantheism. Pantheism describes God is in everything. Or the word panacea, which means something that, that heals everything. Notice what he says here. Love bears all things. 
Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. The word all here is obviously used as a hyperbole to describe the seriousness, the extent of this. It's not that we believe everything that comes our way. But our belief in God, our belief in the things of God, we believe all things. We're not always questioning and doubting. We bear all things. We bear up under the load. We hope all things. We don't give up hope. Hope is the anchor for our soul. But also love endures all things. The word here for endure was a military term used of an enemy that was holding a vital position and was unwilling to give it up. You see, love does not give up. Love continues on. Love stands firm and takes hold of that position and does not relinquish it just because the going gets tough. Love keeps bearing, love keeps believing, love keeps hoping, and love keeps enduring. It does not give up. That is agape love. God does not give up on you. He doesn't give up on me. He is faithful. And finally, we see the permanence and the preeminence of that love. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways." You think that was an indictment on the Corinthian church? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Three words there in verse 8. Love never ends. Everything else will be done away. But love never ends. If God is love, God has no beginning, God has no end. Love will not end. As the Corinthians prize these certain gifts and elevated gifts above other things, Paul is saying to them, look, all of these things one day will have no purpose and will serve no purpose. But the one thing that will remain is love. And I believe that is why love is superior in verse 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And there's various debate as to why he listed these three that way, why he said this in this form. But, but I just believe it's because eventually one day there will not be need for faith. There will not be need for hope. It will be realized. It will be possessed. And we will see what we see now dimly. We will see then face to face. But what will remain is love. Agape love. So, if you were to grade yourself this morning and treat how we treat one another, how we love one another, how do you score on a scale of zero to five? And being obedient to the Lord. There's five statements that, as I thought about this and, and uh, let this kind of marinate this past week, and I thought about these things, and these are some things I want to end with as it relates to loving one another that I believe we find from what we've studied. 
And that is, loving one another begins with us relinquishing our rights and desires for the benefit of others without expecting anything in return. Are we willing to do that, Christian? Loving one another means being willing to risk rejection to graciously confront the sin in another believer's life. You see, the worst thing we could do is to allow a brother or sister to continue in sin. That's not love. That's not, that's not love at all. Third, loving one another includes showing or extending grace, respect, and honor to those you might disagree with. Fourth, loving one another is expressed when we are willing to forgive others without expecting anything in return. Oh, I'll forgive them if. Do we say that sometimes? Oh, I'm willing to forgive if. No, that's not forgiveness. That's conditional. And finally, loving one another is demonstrated when we are willing to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I was wrong, and will you forgive me? You know what that requires, but it should not be expected. When somebody says, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And you're on the receiving end, you know what's required of you and me? To say what? I forgive you. I forgive you. I've seen this happen many times. People will say to another, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Sure. That's not, a, that's not a response. But when we say, yes, I will forgive you, that's extending forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. But see, you're not responsible for their response. You're only responsible to do what you said, and that is, I was wrong, will you forgive me? They're responsible for the response, not you. So how well do we do? You see, each of these six items we've looked at over the past month, abiding, praying, give, go, serve, and now love, that's who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be doing as the church of Jesus Christ. If we could get those six verbs down, what God could do, what God could do. Father, thank you for time together this morning to look at your word. And Father, I realize for some this is difficult. For some this tugs at their heart. For some it may even make them mad. And Father, we pray at this moment the Holy Spirit, He would work in hearts and lives. And Father, if there are people here today that need to go to one another, they would do that. If there are people here today that need to corporately say to your church, I'm sorry, they would do that. If there are people here today that need to say to a spouse, I was wrong, will you forgive me? They would not walk out the door until they did that. Father, help us to be a people who love the way Jesus loved, who obey His command, who love one another so that the world says they are His disciples. Father, may the world see that love in how we treat one another. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, visit us at nbbchurch.org.